0: A great introduction for our passage this morning in Matthew chapter 19, a very short and very poignant passage, almost appended, if you will, to the end of a discussion about marriage and uh, and divorce, but the subject of these verses is children. And like the little children it discusses, this little paragraph is often passed over quickly and dismissed maybe as as a sort of an unnecessary or unimportant topic while we focus in on other matters. But Jesus is trying to make clear that when it comes to children, like the ones who just sang to us, there are no more important topics in His kingdom. These children deserve their rightful place alongside anything else that you might consider to be pressing, anything else that you might be consider to be critical in your life this is what Jesus says beginning in verse 13 the children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray the disciples rebuked the people but Jesus said let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven and he laid his hands on them and they went away You know, throughout history, most societies and cultures have looked on children as unimportant or insignificant or in many places just simply an unwanted inconvenience. Maybe the grimmest testimony to that was Roman society, which practiced uh, such a disregard for these most vulnerable members of society, they would actually abandon them, expose them. That was the term. They would take all of their unwanted children and infants. They would take them outside the city into the wilderness and leave them out to perish at the hands of the wild beast or the forces of nature. It was a cruel custom that reflected a prevailing belief in those days that children had little value, that they were disposable commodities. It was a reflection of a society that epitomized a love of strength and lineage and even the economic interest of adults as paramount above everything else. And they neglected to really understand the inherent worth of these little lives. It was, in fact, the early church that began to stamp out this practice by regularly following these families into the wilderness. And once they had abandoned their children and left the scene, the church would collect the little babies and take them back into their homes and end up raising them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Well, there's no doubt a passage like we have in front of us today that taught the church to respond in that kind of a way. To see the inherent priority and opportunity that comes with children. Now, Matthew introduces this to us with the word then. You'll just notice there in verse 13, he says, uh, then. The children were brought to him. That is a general word of transition. It's not necessarily temporal. It doesn't necessarily indicate that this happened right after his discussion of marriage and divorce. But Matthew probably puts it here because of the similarity, if you will, in topics and subject matter. He had just talked about marriages. Now he's talking about children. But we pick up from the other Gospels, from Luke particularly, and the, and the terminology that Luke uses, that this was a regular occurrence with Jesus, that everywhere he went, people were bringing him their children so that he could pray for them and he could bless them. Uh, They saw, no doubt, in him a kind of love and a kind of of kindness that they wanted to be associated with their children. Uh, Many of them had heard the authority of his teaching, and as was a regular practice, they wanted the blessing of a rabbi in their children. Some of them, no doubt, had even seen his power when he laid his hands on various people and healed them. And so for all of those reasons, parents were eager to have the blessing of this particular teacher. They were eager to have God's work done in their lives of their children. They wanted their children to know the Lord. They wanted their children to walk with the Lord. And so they wanted their children to be blessed by this particular rabbi. And uh, no doubt, at first, this was uh, maybe a welcomed sort of development with the apostles. In the early days, when Jesus was maybe not as well known, it would have been even a sign of encouragement that the people were so receptive to Jesus. But as time went on and Jesus' popularity grew, it would appear that the disciples started to believe this was an interference, some sort of infringement on on Jesus' time, a distraction from what they believed ought to be the more important responsibilities and tasks that he was giving himself to. And so not to, in their minds, waste Jesus' time, they started to hinder the children and forbid the children, try to prevent the parents from bringing them. But all of this opens up a door for Jesus to give one of his most memorable lessons on discipleship as well as on children. He makes two uh, critical or fundamental statements here about children that teach us tremendous truths about these little ones in our midst. He teaches them first of all in verses thirteen through fourteen the place that children hold in the kingdom. He teaches the place that children hold in the kingdom. He he makes this basic fundamental statement that they are to come. Because of the tremendous place that they have. Now, this is more than just sort of a sentimental statement about some vulnerable group in society. There are other vulnerable people that Jesus encountered all the time, but he never makes such an explicit statement of support and inclusion as he does with these children. That's because not only does he have a deep sense of the opportunity that childhood presents. But he also wanted to demonstrate to the uh, apostles a kind of priority that they should have in receiving and welcoming these children who are presented to him, which is exactly what these parents are doing, to welcome them because of the status that they have. They were bringing, these parents were, they were bringing their children to Jesus, as I said, so that he could lay his hands on them and pray for them. We don't have a lot of details necessarily about the motives or about who these parents are and how long they had maybe walked or not walked with Jesus. Uh, We really don't have a lot of detail about the kids. Matthew uses the broadest term for children. He uses the word Pidon. but we gather from Luke that they were uh, on the younger side, he uses uh, Luke when he gives this account uses the word Brephos, which was a uh, a word for small children, even infant children and mark and when he gives this account, he actually mentions that they were uh, being picked up by Jesus in his arms, so whatever these children are, whoever they are they 're small enough for Jesus to lift up and hold in his hands and so We imagine that these are all children who maybe are perhaps 10 years or younger, maybe even some toddlers and infants, and these parents are bringing them to the great teacher and the great healer so that he could uh, touch them and and bless them. This would have been, as I said, a common practice in the ancient world, people bringing their children to uh, the rabbi so that he could do this. Uh, Even in the early days of Jesus's Uh, life. You may remember when he was taken to the temple, there was one uh, godly man in the temple, one Simeon, who was a Levite, who took Jesus in his arms and prayed a prayer of blessing over him. And you see this happening in the ancient literature, people wanting the rabbis to lay hands on and pray for their children. Uh, that, That whole idea of laying hands on them was Uh, really kind of grounded in an Old Testament symbolic ceremony. It, it of course, was very uh, prominent in the sacrificial system. On the Day of Atonement, you may remember that the priest laid his hands on a goat, what we call the scapegoat, and he would symbolically transfer all the sins and impurities of the people onto that goat, and then they would take it out and leave it out somewhere in the wilderness, abandoned and utterly forgotten, In other ceremonies, those who were bringing sacrifices to the temple would lay their hands on the sacrifice, on the animal, to sort of symbolically convey their sins on that animal before its sacrifice. But it worked in the opposite direction as well. It wasn't just a curse. It also was used as a symbol of blessing, conveying blessing. And so you see priests laying hands on kings before they are established uh, as a a demonstration of God's election and God's blessing over them. And even within families, you see fathers laying their hands on their sons and praying for them. Jacob, uh, excuse me, uh, uh, Joseph in, in Genesis chapter 48, laying his hands on Ephraim and Manasseh and praying God's blessing and God's favor on them. So these parents were coming and they wanted their children to participate this, uh, in this as well, just like we do sometimes in our own day. We have these special services where we bring parents and children before the congregation and we pray for them and we ask for blessings in their lives, that they would be brought up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, that they would come to know the Lord at an early age. Jesus, in, in everything that he's saying here, uh, would seem to suggest the importance of doing those kinds of things. By the way, while we're sort of noting all that, it might be helpful to also note what Jesus is not doing. He's receiving these children, and He's laying hands, and He's uh, praying for them, but He's not calling for them to be baptized. He doesn't baptize them Himself. I only say that because this is a passage that is sometimes used to justify that practice of infant baptism, but it's evident in this Uh, in this uh, section of Matthew, that this is a very dry verse. There is no water, there's no sprinkling, there's no pouring, there's certainly no baptizing. That's in spite of the fact that Jesus himself endorsed baptism. In fact, he participated in it because he said it was necessary for him to fulfill all righteousness and he implicitly endorsed the baptism of John for everyone else when he himself submitted to it. So he would have everyone undergo baptism and, and if he was such a strong believer in baptism and if he was such a strong believer in infant baptism, you would assume that he would be telling these parents, you need to have these children baptized, but he doesn't do any of that. It's really unfortunate the church developed that tradition hundreds of years after its founding. I was reading this week and came across a passage from the third century church father Tertullian, where he was urging parents not to rush in and baptize their children too early. He apparently had begun to see the trend in the third century of people starting to baptize their children younger and younger and younger, a, a, a development which would eventually devolve into full blown infant baptism in the fifth century. The people wanting to somehow secure their child's place in God's kingdom came to believe that they were going to do that by baptism. That if they didn't baptize their child, that somehow they would be left out of God's kingdom if the child somehow passed away or died. And even after the Reformation, when the the whole idea of of salvation and justification was clarified. Many reformed churches out of tradition held on to that practice and have continually struggled to articulate why it's necessary to begin with, that somehow, some way, this act of baptism places the child under some sort of special form of grace or maybe under some sort of covenant relationship with God, which they wouldn't have apart from any of that. But it's clear, as Jesus is teaching all of these things, it's clear that he doesn't see that ritual as necessary. He doesn't see that component "...as necessary for them to be a part of God's kingdom." He says it very plainly. Allow the children to come, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. That is a profound truth. A profound truth that the kingdom of heaven belongs to these infants... And there's no restriction, there's no condition, there's no ritual that's associated with it. He doesn't say, if this, then that. There's none of that that's here. This is an all-encompassing embrace of this unique demographic, if you will, of people in their vulnerable state. He says that the kingdom of heaven belongs to them as a category. A whole class of people. The kingdom of heaven is theirs. The kingdom in the sense of the the sphere of salvation, it is theirs. It belongs to them and others like them. No limitations. No ceremonies. Of course, when he talks about the kingdom of heaven, he's talking about the same kingdom of heaven we've heard about throughout the book of Matthew all the way back to chapter 5, verse 3. It's the same kingdom of heaven he was talking about there when he said, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And as much as the kingdom of heaven belongs to the poor in spirit, it belongs to these children. There is, in other words, a profound nature of God's divine care for these little ones that before they reach the, uh, the, the age of adulthood or sometimes we talk about the age of accountability, before they reach that, that, that level where they're accountable for their belief or unbelief, Jesus says there is an inclusion of these children in his kingdom. And it doesn't hinge on anything other than the fact that they're children. It doesn't hinge on the fact that they are baptized or unbaptized. It doesn't hinge on the fact that they are elect or non-elect. It do, certainly doesn't hinge on the fact that they have made any kind of decision or not decision. Regardless of any kind of subcategorization, the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. Now, none of this negates the fact that these children are sinners. They are The scripture tells us, born with corrupt hearts. Underneath all those cute little rolls of fat and, you know, the little facade of innocence, there is a darkened, corrupted heart from the moment of their conception. This is what David says. You may remember in Psalm 51, in sin, my mother conceived me. He wasn't talking about his mother's sin or the sinful act. He's talking about how how he was conceived from the very beginning as a sinner. And the Bible is unflinching in this evaluation of us from our earliest days. Genesis eight twenty one: the imagination of man's heart is evil from his infancy, from his youth. Proverbs 22, foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. So the scripture is resolute in affirming our state of guilt and corruption that that it's, it's not the result of some uh, some later consequence it's not the product of the circumstances in which we are born into the environment that we're raised in that does, that's not the corrupting influence on us the corrupting influence comes from who we are from the very beginning of our conception We inherit a sinful nature, and we also are born under a curse. As a member of the human race which has been condemned, we are born in a state of condemnation in and of ourselves. This corruption, of course, manifests itself in the life of little ones almost immediately. As soon as they have opportunity for expression, they are expressing selfishness and And, uh, you know, uh, the anger and greed and all those other things. Children are not morally neutral. They're not innocent. It wouldn't be uh, at least theologically appropriate to refer to them as innocent. There's a profound truth that's important for us to recognize in the care and the nurturing of children that we are dealing with people whose whose hearts are born with this corrupt bent. So when Jesus talks about their inclusion in the kingdom, it has nothing to do with their inherent innocence. It's solely an act of divine grace, an unmerited favor that God shows to these little ones in their sinful state to be included in his kingdom. And so we, we understand that. We embrace that. We recognize that. That Jesus makes this, this enormous declaration of these sometimes seemingly insignificant lives, these ones that so many people overlook. God makes this enormous declaration that they are his special recipients in his kingdom. Now, it's important to understand what we're saying here. People hear that and they're like, well, are you saying that these kids are saved? That they're saved and then, and then somehow later they lose their salvation? Is that what you're saying? Well, probably not in the sense that most people ask the question. Most people, whenever they begin to ask that question, what they're really asking is, are you saying that somehow people have been born again? That, that they have eternal life within them and then somehow they lose that life? That's not what we're saying. These kids are born within the, the sphere of God's special grace, but that, that special grace, that inclusion in the kingdom, is not eternal life. They're, they're spiritually dead. In their, in their mortal flesh, they are spiritually dead, and they will die in their, in their mortal flesh like everyone else. They do not have eternal life living within them, Unless or until, perhaps, they pass away in their infancy, at which time God would give them eternal life, but they do not yet possess it. They're in a state of grace until they reach an age of accountability. Now, this is not a unique idea. It is, in fact... uh, a long-standing teaching within the church. MacArthur notes this in his little book, Safe in the Arms of God, with a number of quotes from church, uh, church leaders. He quotes, for example, John Calvin, who says, those little children have not yet any understanding to desire his blessing, but when they are presented to him, he gently and kindly receives them and dedicates them to the Father by a solemn act of blessing it would be cruel to exclude that age from the grace of redemption, he says. B.B. Warfield, if all that are in infancy are saved, it can only be through the abrupt operation of the Holy Spirit who rules when and where and how he pleases through, uh, through whose ineffable grace the Father gathers these little ones to The home he has prepared for them. Their destiny, Warfield goes on to say, is determined irrespective of their choice by an unconditional decree of God. Suspended for its execution on no act of their own. Their salvation is wrought by an unconditional application of the grace of Christ to their souls. Through the immediate and irresistible operation of the Holy Spirit, prior to and apart from any action of their own proper wills. And if death in infancy does not depend on God's providence, it is assuredly God in his providence who selects this vast multitude to be made participants of his unconditional salvation. One pastor about a hundred years or years ago, a man named R. A. Webb wrote a little book called The Theology of Infant Salvation. And in in it, he says this, if a dead infant were sent to hell on no other account than that of original sin, there would be good reason to the divine mind for the judgment because sin is a reality. But the child's mind would be a perfect blank as to the reason of its suffering. Under such circumstances, it would know suffering but it would have no understanding of the reason for its suffering. It couldn't tell itself why it was in, in so awful had been so awfully smitten, and consequently the whole meaning and significance of its sufferings being to it a conscious enigma, the very essence of the penalty would be absent, and justice would be disappointed, cheated of its validation. End quote. There are reasons, in other words, why God extends his special grace to these little ones. There are reasons why he has declared that the kingdom belongs to them. And so he tells the disciples, these ones that are so overlooked so quickly by society and everyone around you, they're not overlooked by me. Theirs is the kingdom. Theirs is the kingdom. And were they to tragically pass away today, they would be with you in the kingdom eternally. And so it gives them an incredibly exalted place within the ministry and within the church, within the focus of Jesus' own ministry, and really within our ministry. In fact, that's somewhat the immediate application that Jesus gives to the disciples and the uh, really a second tremendous truth about these children that arises out of this, it, which is the, the, the tremendous opportunity for the kingdom. They present, these children, a tremendous opportunity for the kingdom. The, the disciples were to let them come. They were to allow them. They were not to hinder them because Jesus understood that receiving them and praying for them and even teaching them ought to be one of the priorities of every disciple of Christ. You see this throughout the Scripture, the importance of teaching children. In fact, Deuteronomy lays it out very clearly about how this should be a constant focus and concern for every parent. When you rise up and when you go to bed, when you go out and when you come in, In other words, whenever you wake up and you're around the breakfast table, you ought to be presenting to your children everything that they hear, everything that they see, everything that they experience ought to be constantly presented to them within the framework of God's truth and God's glory. So when you're sitting around the breakfast table, you're talking to them about the things of God, uh, or, or I should say you're talking to them about the things that they are experiencing within the context of God when you're winding down the day, having your evening meal or spending time together as a family, whatever they see, whatever they hear, you're constantly framing it within the context of God's truth and pointing them back to the truth of God and teaching them to think through the world in the framework of biblical truth. When they rise up, when they when they lie down, when they go out, when they come uh, back whatever they're going to wherever you're traveling in your car you're talking to them about all the things that they're seeing all the things that they're hearing within the framework of God's truth whenever you're returning home and you're reflecting on the experiences that you just had whatever it might be and you hear them chattering you're always pointing that experience for them back to the truth of God and framing it within the law of God this was God's design for little children, Paul even tells Timothy in First Timothy, excuse me, Second Timothy, chapter three, verse fifteen, how that his precious uh, mother and grandmother had, from his earliest days, been teaching him the Scripture this way. The Scripture that Paul says was able to make him wise unto salvation. So this was something that was flowing into his life, not only from his parents but also from his grandparents. Every. Every godly voice that has opportunity is pouring into his little soul, the truth of God. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul even envisions the dynamic of a home that is divided, where there aren't necessarily two godly or believing voices. You have a believer and an unbeliever. And Paul says in that particular context if the unbeliever is willing to continue to live together with you in marriage, you don't try to break up that marriage, you don't seek divorce or anything like that because you run the potential of that unbelieving spouse taking your children away. But as long as they are there, you have the opportunity, he says, to sanctify your children, to constantly be pouring into their life. Why? Because children present this tremendous opportunity. Tremendous opportunity to shape their hearts and minds by the Word of God in the context of everything they're experiencing. Jesus no doubt understood this sort of vital and special opportunity because he understood the openness to spiritual truth that children have. In fact, this uh, this is reflected even more In the parallel accounts, when Luke and Mark both add the additional statement, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. In other words, the thing that Jesus was really celebrating about these children was their receptivity to spiritual truth. They were open to spiritual things for all the sin and corruption that might still be in their hearts. They were at this tender age still receptive to spiritual things to spiritual conversations, to spiritual truth. Their consciences had not begun to harden against the truth of God. Their life choices had not begun to bring about in their hearts a closing off to the things of God. And so there was a readiness to receive instruction, a receptiveness to God's word. And all of this provides a tremendous opportunity when you have children And this is why Jesus prioritized it. This is why he never wanted his disciples to imagine that children would in any way be some kind of deviation or distraction or or inconvenience or secondary matter when it comes to the ministry. J.C. Ryle says it this way, quote, let us draw from these verses encouragement to attempt great things in the religious instruction of children. Let us begin from the very earliest years to deal with them as having souls to be lost or saved and strive to bring them to Christ. Let us make them acquainted with the Bible as soon as they can understand anything. Let us pray with them and pray for them and teach them to pray for themselves. End quote. So the church and the disciples were to be, to, were encouraged to be ready, willing, and eager to welcome and receive and invest in the children, because they were under God's special grace and because they had a special openness. In fact, it is this receptivity in children that sort of becomes the model for anyone who enters. The kingdom of heaven. That's what Jesus says in the remainder of that verse in Luke that uh, anyone who doesn't receive the kingdom of heaven like they receive it cannot enter. And one of the reasons that these children are so precious to God is because they they represent to us the kind of teachability, the kind of openness to the things of God that you and I should have. You remember Jesus had taught this back in chapter 18, verse 2. Truly I say to you, unless you you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. He's already made this point just recently with the disciples, that this receptivity, this kind of openness and humility with children is what every disciple must have. This is why he valued them. The incredible ingredient that that, uh, makes them so special within the kingdom is the ingredient that every person in the kingdom must have they must have an absolutely open heart to learn of God to give glory to God to be instructed in God God's ways to be corrected by his word to be receptive to spiritual truth like a child that's the requirement that's the requirement. This is what children are. They know that they don't have any kind of standing. They know that they don't have any kind of resources. They know they don't have any kind of knowledge. You know, if a, if a child wants something, in general, you know, they don't go get in the car and kind of open the garage, you know, and start backing their way. Hopefully, they don't do that. Some of you may tell me a special story here and there, but for the most part... If children know that they sort of want something, what do they do? They go to their parents. They ask, you know, is it, would it be possible for me to do this? Uh, how, you know, how could I get this toy or whatever it might be? How much would it cost? And, oh, by the way, would you get it for me? I mean, all the things that we're supposed to be doing with God. Can I, is this permissible for me to do this? I mean, how would I go about doing this? Uh, I mean, I don't even know how to do it. By the way, would you do it for me? There was no shame, there's no shame in children in in recognizing that they have no wisdom, they have no knowledge, they have no resources, they have no ability, they have no shame whatsoever in admitting any of those things. And so they readily reach out for help. And particularly when it comes to God, they readily recognize Him. You may remember in a couple of chapters, we'll get to Jesus' entry into Jerusalem and who was it. As he entered Jerusalem who were so ready to sing his praises. It was the children. Hosanna, they were saying. And Jesus says that the praise of God is perfected in the mouth of infants. So they praise God. They praise God. I I always remember this story, you know, when when our first son was just a, a little baby and we would sing hymns every night when we put him to bed. And um, uh, we would sing, uh, we would, we would uh, sing, I, I sing the mighty power of God. That was one of our favorite hymns to sing and talks about how the, all the stars obey God. And so we're driving down the road one day and we have his car seat in the back seat, turned around facing out the back window and uh, sort of a quiet moment along the road. And we hear this little voice coming from the back. Stars obey God, mama. Stars obey God. He's just looking out that window at all those stars and reflecting on the truth that had been taught to him and learning to understand the world through the lens of God's Word. This is what God requires of all of us and we have this kind of childlike faith. You remember Jesus offered a prayer back in Matthew chapter 11 verse 25, "I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from wise from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children." He wasn't talking necessarily there about literal children. He was talking about you and me. In other words, he's praising God that the nature of salvation is a nature that bypasses all human pride. Those who pride themselves in their understanding, those who pride themselves in determining their own way, those who pride themselves in whatever kind of experience or knowledge they might might have, they are the ones who never truly come to understand God but who is it who does understand God those who become like a child in other words those who recognize that they they can't trust their own insight they can't trust their own wisdom they can't trust their own knowledge but they yield themselves in this receptivity to God he was praising God for a plan of salvation which and at the same time Saves souls, but also crushes human pride. Why? Because pride is such a corrupting influence. It is the chief cause of our suffering and even our condemnation. It was pride that plunged humanity into sin to begin with. It is pride that continues to cause men and women to stumble. When they harden themselves against the truth of God, they harden themselves against counsel, and they're determined to go their own way. And so he praises God for revealing the gospel of truth to what he calls children. That is, those who are not wise and intelligent in their own eyes. By the way, that's not a a reference to your mental capabilities. I mean, there are within the world many people who are both who are both well educated and non educated. There are people within the church who are well educated, non educated. They they have mental capacities that span the spectrum. None of this has to do with your mental capacity. It all has to do with what you do with your mind, how you yield. I've heard some some of the most intelligent people in the world. And yet it, it was evident that they had completely yielded all of that mental capacity to the straightforward truth of God. These are the ones who received the kingdom of God. So Jesus is saying, this is, this is the children. This is why we love the children. This is why we invest in the children. We invest in them because they are, in a very real sense, our co-heirs of the kingdom at this stage of life. And in a very real sense, they present one of the greatest opportunities that the church will ever know to, to present the gospel, to fulfill the great commission, to carry out the work that the Lord has given to us. And so we welcome them and we receive them and we teach them and we pray for them and we do all that we can to frame their world, their worldview within the framework of God's truth. There are some of you who are sitting here today who hear something like that and you would never, or at least at this point, you have never been willing to humble yourself that way i mean you you pride yourself in your independence you pride yourself in your ability to map out your own course and to choose to go your own way and to follow your own instincts you pride yourself in all of your experience or all of your success or whatever it might be it is all about you jesus is saying that's never going to get you into the kingdom. The only way that you get into the kingdom is becoming like one of these little children. Laying aside your pride and laying aside your self-sufficiency and humbling yourself and being receptive to his word at every turn. Those are the ones that God has chosen to reveal his truth to. Those are the ones who will enter his kingdom you're here today and the Lord is pricking your heart he is showing you the pride that's been there if you're here today and you're ready to receive his kingdom ready to humble yourself as a child let me challenge you that the same words that Jesus says about these children he says to you you humble yourself in that way he says let them come let everyone come Everyone who humbles their heart in that way. They are welcomed and they are included in His kingdom. Father, these are critical thoughts for us who are so full of our own importance and so full of our own agendas that we overlook. We overlook the special place of these children around us. There's so much that we need to do with them. There's so much that we need to learn from them. Teach us to have this kind of childlike heart. And just as importantly, teach us to love children the way that you did. To recognize the place and the role that you have for them in your kingdom and for us in their lives. We'll do that, Lord. We'll do that as you give us the ongoing power of your Spirit to be used in their lives for the sake of your gospel. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.